From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Another park closes in Grand Junction frequented by people experiencing homelessness. But the closure may be more about perception as the city votes down a ban on daytime camping in parks. With the closure of Whitman, with what's happening at Emerson, it just feels like we're consistently, on a regular basis, trying to, to push people around. Then, Colorado's Black history is diverse and rich, but not widely known. An exhibit in Boulder is working to change that by illuminating the stories of Black people across the state. I'm hoping that it's a gateway for people to delve more deeply into Colorado's Black history and then just understand the ways that we have felt so many barriers, obstacles, but we still manage to triumph, we're resilient, and we assert our humanity. I'll speak with two of the people who poured their hearts and souls into sharing this history. I'm Angela Polson, and I support Colorado Public Radio. I think it's really impressive the way that the stories are, they have to be short, um, but they pack a punch because you get the emotional side of the story, but you're also getting the functional side. You know, what are people doing? What could I do if I wanted to become involved? And I think Colorado Public Radio does a great job of that. Support Colorado Public Radio now. Just log on to CPR.org and thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. On Monday, the city of Grand Junction closed another downtown park frequented by people experiencing homelessness. It comes just days after city leaders voted against a rule that would ban tents in city parks in the daytime. Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess joins us now with some context. Hi, Tom. Hello, Chandra. Let's start with that vote on the tent ban. What happened there? So this was a part of a larger package of rules updates for Grand Junction City Parks. It was not intended to just be a we're going after the tents during the daytime thing. These come out of a board that reviews things. I think there was also talk about slack lines and trees at the same time. But the headline issue was tents in city parks during the daytime. Now, I say the daytime because overnight camping is already banned unless shelters are full. That's not uncommon. This focused on tents that were being set up during the day and being used often by people experiencing homelessness. And the new rule would have required you to have a permit if you're going to have an enclosed structure in the park. Notably, this comes a few months after the city closed Whitman Park, where a lot of unhoused residents gather. And five of the seven city council members who voted to reject this proposal One of the things that came up from them a lot was that there's this perception, some of it earned, that the city council is doing more to prohibit where unhoused people can be and not enough to give them alternatives. Here's council member Jason Wynn. If I was sitting as a layperson in the city with the closure of Whitman, with what's happening at Emerson, it just feels like we're consistently on a regular basis trying to to push people around. Whether or not that's our intention, that's that's what I would think if I was... on on the outside of of city operations. Now, some members of the council and some members of city staff say that that's kind of an unfair characterization. The city is putting real money towards homelessness resources. They just opened a resource center that cost about a million bucks. Now, you've been reporting on homelessness in conjunction with Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. She visited that resource center shortly after it opened. It's snowing just south of Main Street. 
But inside this huge white event tent, loud heaters blast warm air. Maybe a dozen or so people sit on padded chairs, and at a small table, a man with long dark braids shows off several pairs of earrings. So these are cranes, these are irises, these are dragons. Iridescent origami figures he folded. My name is Raven Blackwing, and we're sitting at the Resource Center. During the day, it offers food, clothing, and showers for unhoused people. A place to relax without judgment. It feels great. Blackwing is one of hundreds of Grand Junction residents who sleep outside. I'm half native, so we value being able to suffer well. He's lived this way for years, and like many unhoused people he's met, self-medicated with alcohol. But he gave up drinking, and the center's calm environment helps him stay focused. I need structure. Otherwise, I'll go astray. Chris Masters gets it. He used to be unhoused himself. Now he works with Homeward Bound of the Grand Valley, a nonprofit that partnered with the city and United Way of Mesa County to open the center in late January. It is not just to get people inside off of the streets. That is one purpose, but the main focus is to get people on a track to being housed. Maybe that starts with getting them medical care, or maybe just a cup of coffee. Masters says case managers meet people where they're at. This is not just a Band-Aid. He calls it a social movement. And we have to put all of our differences aside and look at the big picture. Are we here to help or are we not? That's what it boils down to. The Resource Center will stay here for two years. And in that time, Masters hopes the community will come together to find more solutions. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Tom, how does the closure of another park factor into this? I understand Emerson Park is a few blocks east of the last downtown park the city closed. It is, and they're linked, and there's a lot related here, but there's also a lot of context to get the full picture. When Mm. Whitman Park closed in September, that kind of happened as a surprise. A lot of resource providers in the nonprofit world were a bit taken aback by it, and that's where a lot of the frustration came from. Emerson Park is a little west. That's where a lot of people who were staying at Whitman Park moved to. But this park's been on the books for some changes for a while now. The city wants to put a skate park in there. It's a part of this broader effort to reactivate some of these parks that aren't getting a lot of use. There's some who say that the reason these parks aren't getting that use is because the unhoused community has started to gather there. And some other folks will say, well, these parks also aren't in a great location. They're kind of between two highways. It's tough to get to them. But at least when it comes to Emerson, while this has been in the works, it does point to that perception problem that you heard Jason Wynn talking about earlier. Absolutely. Well, is the city doing more to close that gap between services for people experiencing homelessness in Grand Junction? Unquestionably, they are working to add more money into the system, to connect resource providers with each other and with people more. An outfit called the Joseph Center, which focuses on housing women and children, just got roughly a million bucks to help expand one of their programs. The city gave another million and a half to the Grand Junction Housing Authority that's working on a big housing complex. And city staff say that depending on how some grants go, they might invest as much as $13 million in housing projects. But None of that's going to get built overnight. 
And then there's also this idea of allowing some sanctioned campgrounds. Other cities have experimented with this to some degrees. A lot of council members who voted against the tent ban said that they would be in favor of updating those rules if there was a spot that allowed for camping, if there was a place for these people to go. Here's council member Randall Wrights. We need to have sanctioned camping. We need to have uh, shelters. We need to have transitional housing. We need to have low-income housing, affordable housing. And I think we've done a great job of expanding that spectrum. But where we have not done at all is the idea of finding a way for people to camp with legal status. Now, I should note that tent bans are not unusual for park rules. A lot of cities have this in place where you need to have a permit to have structures like this. But what the city is now trying to do is balance out those resources to see if they're doing enough to both update their parks rules and also help out this community. So it's likely that this may come up again once they feel that's evened out a little bit. Tom, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Thank you, Chandra. Tom Hess is our Western Slope producer in Grand Junction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's Black History Month. Find stories from the Black community and Black creators on CPR podcasts, Systemic and Off the Walls. I just felt like I had a responsibility to think about people who fought for racial equality. It was like my blossom season. Like I was opening up to become this woman. It feels good to be heard. It really does feel really good to be heard. Listen to Systemic and Off the Walls wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. An exhibit at the Museum of Boulder is working to illuminate and reclaim the history of Black people across Colorado. I met the project lead, Adrian Miller, as the exhibit was opening last fall. It's called Proclaiming Colorado's Black History. So you've been working on this for about two years, which means this project was started in the wake of the protest for racial justice that followed George Floyd's murder in 2020. Do you see this exhibit as part of the national reckoning, so to speak, on race and conversations about justice for black people? Yeah. So um, this is not surprising to black people, but what happened to George Floyd, his murder was a wake up call to a lot of people. They didn't realize how this country really plays out for a lot of people who live here. And so one thing that I've noticed is there's been sustained interest in racial justice. And I have to tell you, when that first happened, I thought it was going to be typical to what usually happens in this country. A couple of months of intense interest, and then we move on. And I don't think that that's happened for a lot of people. People have been really interested in in trying to grapple with these issues, not only systemically and what's happening in our society at large, but also in their own lives. The number of people that have taken the time to talk to black creatives, black social justice leaders and racial justice leaders and find out, you know, what are we thinking? What would we like to see? Reading books, trying to get into dialogue. Um, I I have been impressed and surprised that it's been sustained for this long. We still have a lot of work that we have to do, but I think we still have a moment. And this exhibit, I think, is an extension of that moment. And so I'm hoping that it's a gateway for people to delve more deeply into Colorado's black history and then just understand the ways that we have felt so many barriers, obstacles, but we still manage to triumph, we're resilient, and we assert our humanity. This exhibit is also about Black history and Colorado as a whole. How would you describe the exhibit in your own words? 
So I would say that it is a very comprehensive look in many ways at Colorado's black history. Of course, we had to thread the needle because mm. there's so many stories to tell. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to balance telling that Colorado story, but definitely giving a shout out to Boulder because it's housed at the Museum of Boulder. So trying to just balance those things. But we wanted to talk about the black experience in Colorado from the earliest days when Africans, uh, people of African heritage were in this area and then try to bring it all the way up to the current times but then have a look at the future. Well, I'm just curious, did you learn anything new in this process? Oh, I learned a lot of new stuff, um, mainly because we were very intentional about reaching out to the community. So I'm just really excited for people to learn these stories and just learn about this history because Colorado does not have a reputation for being you know, the most diverse place. Well, I can definitely attest to that as a person who moved here, and I've actually been surprised and shocked at the rich history. Mm -hmm. I also understand that kids in school in Boulder Valley will also get a curriculum on black history stemming from this exhibit. Yeah, it was very important for us that this exhibit live beyond the walls of the museum. So we got someone who could develop a curriculum with the Boulder Valley School District. And we don't want it too rooted in history. We want people to know their history, but we wanted it to be a jumping off point to understand contemporary issues and also look to the future. And even before we put the exhibit together, we spoke to young people and asked them what would they like to see. What are some of the suggestions that the kids shared? So one thing that was very memorable is they wanted to have something experiential. And so we have two installations in the exhibit. One is of Second Baptist Church, which is the only now predominantly black church in northern Colorado. And then also we have an installation of Deerfield, which was an all-black agricultural colony, which speaks to the homesteading experience. Mm. A lot of people don't think of African Americans as homesteaders. When the act was first passed federal level at 1862, African Americans were often denied uh, the opportunity to homestead, but still over time, those opportunities opened up. And Deerfield is the most famous example of an all-black agricultural colony in Colorado, but there were several throughout the states. It's just Deerfield was the one that has, gets the most recognition. So we were mindful of that, and we, we made sure that we had some stuff that kids can kind of plug into when they're uh, going through the exhibit. Another interesting facet about this exhibit is that you try to recreate what life was like for the first known black child here in Colorado. You, re you visit that concept, and that was back in 1864. Tell us about her, and how did she come to be in Colorado? Her name is Annabelle Riley. As far as the records indicate, she was born in 1864, the first African-American child born in Colorado. And so we wanted her to welcome you to the exhibit. And then through her life, she evokes the main themes of the exhibit. And do we know what she looked like? Are there any written accounts of her experience? We have some biographical information of her through uh, newspaper articles and other things. But we learn more about her parents, actually. Her father, Thomas, was actually one of the early black uh, people to come to Colorado. He was brought out here by a group of miners from Georgia. And then in time, he was uh, accomplished in his own right. So we hear more about her parents. She died young, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't hear a lot about her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you present her in silhouette. So is it in some ways trying to impart, she's specifically herself, mm -hmm. but she also represents an experience. Exactly. So we talk about how she and her family built community by you know, being planted in a place going to a black church, doing other things to make a living, build community, relate to other folks, and you know, try to have that American dream. 
But what sense did you get about what life was like to be a child in that time? So it was a mixed experience. So Colorado, even though legally there was never the things that we see in other states in terms of slavery being legal and certain things on the books to forcibly segregate and other things, people were doing it by practice. Even though we hear about the South a lot, people took those notions with them outside of the South and transplanted them all over the country. And also media outlets were very happy to reprint things that were racist about black people in their newspapers. So you're, you're reading newspapers in the 1800s in Colorado, and you're seeing the N-word all over the place. Uh, we also had lynchings here in Colorado. So we tell the story of Preston Porter, who was lynched in the early 1900s. So sometimes black folks were in a place where they were left alone and they were able to have self-determination and carve out a good life. But so like the situation of black folks in so many different parts of the country, white racism, jealousy, whatever you call it, sought to limit the opportunities, both social, economic, and political for African-Americans. Before we talk about how it's presented here in the museum, tell us about the significance of the Second Baptist Church in Boulder. Well, Second Baptist Church was organized by, and I always say, nine forward-thinking people, five women and four men. The reason that that's significant is that I'm the second woman minister on staff in our 115-year wow. history. So on January 7, 1908, they uh, chartered and began service. It was the beloved community. It was how people got together and did life, literally. And I feel fortunate and blessed to have been at Second Baptist for the last 43 years because I have a chance to interact with the grandchildren of four of the nine founding members. Well, I can definitely attest to church being very much a part of the spiritual and social experience for black Americans. Tell us what was it like here? Well, I moved here in 1980. We moved from Long Beach to Longmont. And I had to Whoa, stop. that sounds <laughs> very far apart. <laughs> when I got here, we were transferred. And I was pregnant with my now 43-year-old son. And I had a six-year-old daughter. And I looked around and I thought, God, are you anywhere? Where, where are the black people? I have not seen any. I've gone for two weeks and I have not seen any. And different than how we grew up, you know, ain't so-and-so was on the next corner or in the next block, and grandma so-and-so lived over here and lived over there. These people could come by and pick you up. Not only did we have no black people, we had no family here. Mm. And so this is where I met the 19th and Canyon Church. It was kind of leaning to one side and, you know, it was built in 1946, and then then I noticed the choir would rock, and we'd lean to the other side. And so I and, thought, and you're rocking okay. as you say this. <laughs> I, I'm saying, I can get with this. I can get with this. And so I've been there 43 years. So, Well, I moved here in 2012, and our stories are shockingly similar. <laughs> and as a person who's in a lot of online groups about diversity, people are still asking, where are the black people in Colorado? Ex exactly. <laughs> and we tell them. <laughs> We tell them that they are here, we, believe it we or not. Are. 
So now we're here at the installation of the Second Baptist Church. There's a lot to see here. I see a choir robe. There's a video playing of a choir performance. I see a piano, really just different artifacts from the church. From the old church, 19th and Canyon Street. And that was the address? Yes, uh, that I mentioned before. We moved to our current location in uh, 1991. Mm. This robe happens to be the robe of Reverend Hansford Van, who was uh, the longest serving pastor there. Mm. He was the, the chaplain. <laughs> Boy, he'd be in his heyday right now. He just passed away two years ago. He was the chaplain for the Colorado Buffaloes uh, football team. Well, so. I bet he's still excited about those buffs. <laughs> I bet he is. Yeah, go buffs. I'm sure he'd be saying I also right see a pretty worn pew, church pew behind you. Yes. That piano mm-hmm. was purchased in 1946 wow. when the Queen Alice Mission and a bunch of women got together. And you know how we have fish fries and chicken fries. They paid for the dishes and the... Uh, the settings in our kitchen, the formal settings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they also purchased that piano. I also see this very, um, this darker hued image of Jesus <laughs> holding a lamb. Uh, yes, and that too is from the 19th and Canyon location. I have to tell you something funny about that because we found this up in the women's pool behind uh, the, the, dress, the dressing room for baptism before you come down into the pool. And uh, I looked at it, and so I was like, oh, it's quite the piece. So when I went up there and I saw this, I thought, oh, yeah, this is a treasure. This right here is a treasure. Yeah, and so, it's massive. Yes. And remember, I talked about the family, the founding members, the son of the founding members was in the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra at CU Boulder in 1930. Wow. This is his violin. Those are pictures of him and his wife. We called her Granny. She was just a granny. Everybody. They <laughs> Did she lived, always have peppermint in her purse? Peppermint. <laughs> and after service, we're going to have dinner out at the farm. She was a maid, I'll just say that, out at Boulder Valley Farms until she died. Well, it's really amazing the um, condition of these artifacts. I mean, considering the age, I mean, this violin is like in pristine condition. There's so much history here. I just, my bones just, I just love history. It's so important for us to know, if if at all possible, where we came from, who our people are and what legacy they left us, because we're just really walking in the footsteps of things that they've laid out for us already and the prices that they've paid. So, so grateful. How did other black people migrate to Colorado? So some came here for economic opportunity. So um, in the 1830s and 40s, you had fur trappers. Some people were enslaved. We have scattered reports of enslaved people in mining camps throughout the country. So some came in that way. Some came for opportunity. We think of someone like uh, Claire Brown, 
who was formerly enslaved, made her way here as a laundress, made quite a bit of money, became a philanthropist, was very influential in her faith communities. Um, Some were brought here for military service. So it was a combination of economic opportunity, enslavement, uh, seeking liberty, just wanted a chance at a better life. What do you hope that this installation of the Second Baptist Church will convey to visitors here at this exhibit? If there ever was an against all odds, but by the grace of God story of a people, it is the story of the African-American people who were not allowed to read and write, were not allowed to do anything with the brain, but you could do the manual physical labor. It is the African-American people. And, and, and God, in my faith tradition, has allowed us to persevere and, and do things, not just things, but do great things as human beings. Injustice is all around us. I know people who were lynched for voting, the right to vote. I know families, I'll say, who were lynched. And, you know, we've seen all the atrocities, but it, it never stops gripping your heart when you think that we're people, we're mans, that we're human beings, and we've got to learn to respect and regard and love human life human beings who exist. A large part of this exhibit is the collection of oral histories from Black Coloradans. What did you find most fascinating about the personal stories you heard? To see how excited people were to reflect on where they had been. Many of them have accomplished great things from humble beginnings. I I think about Sandy Banks. I did her interview last July. She was one of only five black teachers in the Boulder Valley School District for over 30, 35 years or so. And it's like, yeah, I haven't done anything that great. And I said, I still, tell me, keep telling me, tell me your story. I got a call from her daughter in June. Uh, and she said, mom's in the hospital. Well, she passed, but I got her to give her oral history last July. I'm so heartwarmed by that because she did things that mattered. Filmmaker Katrina Miller is a part of this exhibit and she did a documentary called This Is Not Who We Are that detailed some of the challenges that many black people say they experience here in Boulder. What do you think it means to put this all on display yeah, I think self-examination is a good thing. I know there may be some that say, no, we don't want to put a negative light on this community and things, but you know, we just have to be real. We have to let people know what life is like because we want a better community, we want a better life. And the ways we're going to get there is if we acknowledge what's happened in the past, what's happening now, and may continue to happen if we don't change course. And so I think shining a light on these issues so that we can create a shared future you know, just acknowledge what's going on, but then we can create a shared future together. I think it's a good thing. Adrian Miller is the project lead for Proclaiming Colorado's Black History, an exhibit underway through fall of 2025 at the Museum of Boulder. We should note that Miller serves on CPR's board of directors. 
Minister Glenda Strong Robinson is the historian for the NAACP of Boulder County, and she also serves as a minister at Boulder's Second Baptist Church. We spoke last fall just as the exhibit was opening. We're sharing this discussion again for Black History Month. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.